Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is The Hard Heart by Pastor Sean Wood. Let's pray as we prepare to come around God's Word. Father, the greatest news in the universe is that each and every one of us are loved of God. What a privilege. None of us deserve it, of course. But we are thankful that we sit under your love and under your grace and under your mercy this morning. As we open your word, Lord, I pray that eternal seeds would be sown in our hearts and in our lives. May we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, we ask, in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. If you've got your Bibles, you'd like to meet me in Exodus chapter 8. As you're making your way there, I'll share something. This morning's going to be reasonably heavy, so we'll start off with something light, hey? My wife sent me this yesterday, so you'll have to blame her, but maybe it's a revelation for some here this morning. Everyone was asking a 100-year-old man for his health secret. The old man said, I'll tell you a secret. I've been married for 75 years. Promised my wife when we got married that when we quarrel, the loser has to walk five kilometres. I've been walking five kilometres every day for 75 years. (laughs) Everyone asked again, then how come? But how come your wife's very healthy as well? And the old man answered, I'll tell you another secret. She'd been following me to make sure I really finish the five (laughs) kilometres. For all of those that that applies to this morning, you're welcome. And we can always pray with you after the service. All right. Praise God. Amen. This morning, as we work our way through Exodus chapter 8, we're going to expose what is a hard heart. Jesus, in the parable of the sower, gives four conditions of the human heart. The first one, he says, is like a path, like a road. Seed falls and the birds come and snatch it away. As you read through these different heart conditions, of course, we get to the last one where uh, the seed falls on good soil and it produces a harvest. And so, so many of God's children are held back from a harvest because of the condition of our hearts. And it's interesting in that parable that the only difference between the uh, person who had a heart that was like a path and the one who had a heart where the seed went in and produced a harvest was one did not understand the word, and one did understand the word, and it was able to penetrate and soak in. And when I was in the forestry, uh, we did four months of the year, was involved in planting, and the catchphrase coming up to planting season was soil moisture index. And that sounds very complex, but the reality is all we wanted to know before we put any trees in the ground is how much soil's in the ground, what kind of, what kind of amount of soil, is, uh, not so much how much rain we've had, but how much moisture's being retained. And it was all to do with the properties of the soil as to how that would go. Uh, one year, because Tasmania was in uh, a reasonable drought at the time, we wanted to get planting. We had all of our schedule. And so there was only two coops that were kind of right up near the top of mountains. Uh, the first one was at the top of a mountain near Mole Creek and the other one was at the top of Mount Barrow. For those that know Tasmania reasonably well, you'll know where they are. And so I said 
to the guy who was in charge that were working for us and listen, these two coops, everything's right. They're at the right attitude. There's the right atmosphere. They'll retain all of the moisture. So we'll go and plant those first. And we got to the one at Mole Creek and sure enough, there'd been enough rain. But because of the fact that it was dry, we went to plant trees and it was like driving the planting guns into concrete. Reason is, there was a huge amount of the soil that was clay. So we immediately left and we went to the other one that was at Mount Barrow and we had a really scientific way of determining the soil moisture index. We used to stick our finger in the dirt. (laughs) It's really technical, right? And if you could feel moisture, you were right to go, Robin. And of course, the other block was ready to go. Two different, completely different types of soil. And I love the words of C.H. Spurgeon. He says that the gospel is like the sun. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And so the word of God reaches the human heart and the same word and the same gospel softens some hearts and changes the composition of our hearts. And some it hardens, and that's the story of Pharaoh. And the reason we're going to look at the hard heart as we go through today, we're going to see three enormous shifts in the narrative now. Three very, very important shifts. But we're also going to see three, as we have an X-ray of the hard heart, we're going to see three elements that make up a hard heart. And we might be sitting here going, well, no, we love Jesus and we're saved. And I don't deny that this morning, but you can still have a hard heart heart and you can love Jesus and have no moisture in your heart and the word goes in and it bears nothing and the word goes in and it bears nothing and before we go any further through the book of Exodus I want to be clear it was the hard stubborn resistant hearts of the people of God that kept them wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years on a 40-day trip and so why this is so important this morning is I pray that people are set free this morning to walk more into the fullness that God has for you. Let us begin our journey as we work our way through. And I'll ask two questions before we go. The first one is, has the gospel changed the composition of your heart? Only the truth of the gospel. Only the truth of the gospel can melt our hearts. Only that truth can change the composition and get all the clay out of our hearts. And the other one I'd like to ask this morning before we conclude is what is the soil moisture index of your heart? We're not going to read through the passages this morning verse by verse. I'm going to pick out the areas we need to speak about this morning. But a little bit of context as we come to chapter 8, verse 1, we begin the second plague, which is the plague of frogs. And before we get to uh, what we want to talk about in the first major shift, a little bit of context, what's going on here? We know that all of the plagues are an attack against the Egyptian gods. Uh, We know that for those that were here when we spoke about the plague of the Nile, that the Egyptians had at least 80 gods and goddesses that they worshipped. Well, one of those was a goddess by the name of Heket. And uh, I don't know if I pronounced that right or wrong, and if I've offended Egyptians in the room this morning, please forgive me. However, uh, Heket was a goddess that had a head like a frog. And the the Egyptians considered frogs, uh, they worshipped them as the goddess of fertility, and they, they, they considered them to be divine. Interesting, as we kind of probe into what they believed, the goddess Heket was the apparent spouse of another god called Kanum. Kanum 
fashioned human bodies, it says, on a potter's wheel. Isn't it interesting how, yes, they're deceived, and yes, they're a long way off course, but there's so much of the fundamentals that they know. If you go, I am absolutely fascinated. You can go to remote tribes today and you will see that they, they understand that there's, there's blood is demanded for wrong and they have uh, some cultures put all of their sins in a boat and float them up the river as to take them away. It's interesting how uh, they resemble biblical, but they're reasonably deceived. But Kanum would fashion these bodies on the potter's wheel and Heket would breathe life into these bodies. So God, we see a plague, we see frogs, but to the Egyptians it was something very deep and very profound and very meaningful. I love how God, when he wants to change and transform a person, he goes right for the heart. Remember when we spoke about the Nile? The Nile for the Egyptians meant everything to them. It was it, their, their security and their existence was founded on the Nile. Uh, their crops were abundant because of the soil that the Nile would dump. And so they, they attributed all of their existence and security to the Nile and they would worship the Nile and they would worship frog and ne- frogs. And now God sends a plague of frogs and the Egyptians, one, can't stop them and two, can't kill them because they consider them to be divine. But something really interesting happens in this particular plague. Verse 8 of chapter 8, then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and he said, underline these three words, four words, excuse me, plead with the Lord. Well, hang on, stop the bus. Just a few short chapters ago, Pharaoh would say to Moses and Aaron, I don't know this Lord. I don't know this God. Who is this God that you're talking about? And this is not just a blazon reference to God. What Pharaoh says is he uses the word Yahweh, Jehovah. And this is very powerful. This is an enormous shift in Pharaoh. Now what Pharaoh is saying, Pharaoh is saying a number of very profound things. First one is this, Moses and Aaron, your God is real. Your God exists. And he has a name. Second thing he's saying is plead with the Lord or entreat the Lord or intercede with the Lord. What's he saying? I have no basis or no grounds to approach your God. And he's right. But the second thing he's saying is, Moses and Aaron, you do, and this God will listen to you. Pharaoh says, plead with the Lord. There's been an enormous shift in Pharaoh's heart. Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Remember that Pharaoh says that when we come back to this part a little bit later. Shift number one, Pharaoh acknowledges Yahweh. That's powerful. There's people here that are probably praying for family members and you're thinking, you know what, on the surface nothing's happening. And if you know, if you were Israel right now, you'd be thinking, you know what, God's moving, God's visiting, but nothing's happening. But obviously something deep and profound has happened inside of Pharaoh. Second major shift. I really, really like this one. We come down to the, the plague of the gnats. Not the cats, the gnats. <laughs> Run for your life if it's a plague of cats, people. The plague of gnats is very different. It's the first plague that is unannounced. 
interestingly enough. And Moses and Aaron don't go to Pharaoh and say there's going to be a plague of gnats. This is the first one that's unannounced. It won't be the last one. But also, uh, it's, it's a miraculous one. You know, yes, God caused the frogs. Yes, he turned the water into blood. But this time he's going to create gnats from dust. But that's, that's not the most profound thing that happens here. Have a listen to what happened to the magicians, the Egyptian magicians, verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Have a listen to what they have to say. So there were gnats on man and beast. Verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Wow. This is the finger of Elohim, God's plural. What are they saying? Pharaoh, we don't know who this God is, but we're here to tell you he's more powerful than us. We need to tell you whatever's going on here, we cannot reproduce this. Oh, yes, they could, they could replicate the, the, the Nile turning into blood. They could replicate the frogs, but they could never remove or reverse the plagues. And now they are standing here saying there is one more powerful than all of the gods that we worship. And what is happening here in Egypt is by the finger of God. It is God moving and it's by his hand. Shift number two, the magicians cannot replicate and they acknowledge there's a higher power. Uh, i never forget, uh, I, I love my grandfather-in-law. My grandfather-in-law's, uh, some of our young people need to meet my grandfather-in-law. He's 95 now, but it, well into his 80s, he was riding 100 kilometres a day, and then he would come home and he'd go for two one-hour walks with uh, our dogs, first of all, and then he would take his wife and their dog for a walk in the afternoon. So uh, uh, well into his 80s, until he fell off and cr- cracked his pelvis and said, you know what, I might, might have a rest. But I remember, uh, I remember a shift in my grandfather-in-law, very arrogant man, very hard man, but one morning he was sitting in his lounge room and he said to his wife, June, there is somebody bigger than us. And he came to church and gave his heart to Christ. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. But that's what the Egyptian magicians are saying now. Pharaoh, um, there's somebody bigger than you. That's what they're actually saying. Because Pharaoh was supposed to be God. (laughs) Uh, There's somebody bigger than you. There's somebody bigger than us. Yes, there is. Most profound shift is the third one. It happens in the fourth plague of flies. Uh, The plague of flies still kind of happens in central Queensland. For those that go to outback Queensland, there's still a plague of flies there, I believe. Um, <laughs> the farmers are looking to share a few if, you, if you're out that way. Verse 21, uh, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. Here we go now, verse 22. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. What's God saying? On that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. What's God saying now? He says, you know what? We're going to send a plague, a swarm of flies, but now there's a little bit of a difference. I'm going to separate my people from your people. Your people are going to have a swarm of flies. Your people are going but my people are going to be exempt. Can I be clear? God's doing it right now. I don't know whether anybody else sees it, but God is doing this across the landscape of his church right now. When God is set to move in power, he draws a real strong line between those in the world and those who are his people. There's no middle ground. God's rubbing out the middle ground. God's saying, you know what, you are, there's no Egyptian Israelites. You are God's people or you are an Egyptian and I'm drawing the line. 
but that's not the most profound part of that statement. I love what he goes on to say. I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord. That is the purpose of the plagues. So that everybody, Israel as well as Egyptian, will know I am the Lord. There is one true God. I am revealing myself. I am making myself known. I love these words, in the midst. The book of Revelation, for those that hung around long enough to uh, probe through the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, we see a picture, uh, John sees a vision of one. (laughs) And what he describes, he says, I I fell down like a dead man. So for those that say, I had a vision of heaven and it was like going down to the milk bar, you might want to talk to John. But John says, when he says, he says, I saw seven golden lampstands, which was a picture of the seven churches. And then he says these really powerful words, in the midst was one like the Son of Man. Wow. And the, the, the whole entire book of Revelation is written to seven churches who were suffering and being persecuted and thought God had lost control. And so the message is, you think you guys are alone, you think I'm a million miles away, but I want you to know I'm right in the midst. Israel, I want you to know I'm right in the midst. And whatever you're going through this morning, how does that apply to us? I want you to know that God is right in the midst. You know, often we paint a picture of uh, Revelations helps us to understand this as well. Often we think that heaven's all the way up there. That's not what John saw. John says, I looked behind me and a door was standing open. He didn't see God all the way up there. He, was, he got a view into another dimension. A spiritual realm that is all around us that we are completely sometimes unaware of. Verse 23, thus I will put a division. That word's really powerful. You've got to highlight that word. That word division means to set a redemption or to set a ransom. I'm going to come back to that word after I finish this sentence. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. And that word division means I will set redemption or I will set ransom. And when we think of the word ransom, we think of hostage and a figure of or a sum of money placed to secure them back. And that's right, but it's not quite deep enough and it's not quite profound enough for what this word is conveying. You see, in ancient times, uh, it was a military term. Uh, A ransom was a military term, and it sounded a little bit like this. If you invaded another country and you were defeated, one of two things happened to you. And one of them wasn't they they were serving you coffee. You were either killed or you were taken captive, you were taken hostage. And what that meant for you was you spent your life in horrible conditions. In fact, you probably preferred to be dead. Because you spent your life in horrible conditions, in slavery to the power that had defeated you. And the term ransom speaks of the other side sending a really important dignitary. You couldn't send the servant. You had to send a really important dignitary. I wonder if this sounds a little bit like the gospel. You had to send a really important dignitary with a price that had already been set to secure And does this mean salvation? Yes, but it means so much more than that. This word set redemption means not only are you saved and rescued, yeah, that's wonderful and glorious, but you are completely released from the power of captivity. Saddest thing today is that so many Christians live like Egyptians in the land of God. I remember back in uh, when reading about when they abolished slavery in America, and 
they'd abolished slavery, the, the law was passed, the bill had been passed and signed, but many of the African-American people had been told and convinced that it hadn't happened, it was only a rumour, and they remained under slavery for many years, although the papers were signed. It's really good news for everybody here this morning. Jesus signed the papers 2,000 years ago. You can be free today. Redemption doesn't just mean I've paid the price. That's part of it. Redemption is I'm paying the price, but I'm also taking you with me back. Third major shift is God says, I will set a division. I will set redemption and a ransom for my people. Three enormous shifts that have occurred in just one chapter. But what effect has this had on Pharaoh? He remains hard. As we work our way through now, we're going to see that there are uh, three examples of a hard heart that I pray each one of us would avoid. First one is this. Remember the first plague of the frogs? Remember that Pharaoh said, do, if you get rid of the frogs, speak to God, intercede with God. If you get rid of the frogs, I'll let you go and sacrifice. Remember what the deal was. Uh, Originally, the deal was you need to let us go. This is a really important part as we work our way through this. You need to let us go a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice and worship to our God and then we'll come back. That's, That's the initial arrangement. Pharaoh agrees to that, but have a listen to what happens. I don't know how many times I've seen this in in, in my years. Verse 14, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. I love that. God says, your gods stink because they stank. Verse 15 says, but when Pharaoh saw there was a respite. (laughs) Okay. Pharaoh's got what he wants. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, He hardened his heart and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. What's happened here? If you get rid of the frogs, Moses, Aaron, if you go and talk to God and get rid of the frogs, you can go and worship, you can do whatever you want. But the minute he gets what he wants, he reverses. And what Pharaoh is doing here is something that we see sometimes. Only the gospel can take this away. It's where we think that we can manipulate God. We think, you know what, God, how many of us have heard this? God, if you just do this, then, I, then I'll give my life to you. But a minute, the minute everything starts to go right, we, we go back to our old ways. And we think that we can, we can coax God. And so the question that comes this morning is, is God your father or is he your genie? You see, many of us think, well, if I just rub well enough, if I just rub the lamp and do this, there's a formula and I can get what I want from God. And if I just turn up to church a couple of times a month and if I give my money and I'm nice to people and if I stop doing this and stop doing that, then that makes me a really holy person and God will iron everything out in my life and make everything rosy. Jesus never promised you a rosy life. Uh, Friends, can I tell you what the heart of the Rock Christian Church is? We're going to expose this more in our Reaching Out series, but the message of Scripture, the message of the Gospel, evangelism, all of it, everything that we do here is orientated for one thing. We are not steering people towards a place. We hope only to lead everybody to a person. Religion takes you to a place. 
You see, we've fallen into the trap of thinking that evangelism looks like we'll run around and tell everybody, hey, if you're a really good person and you say these three sentences, then you can go to heaven. Jesus takes you to heaven. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus says, I will come back and get you. We have the task of taking people to Jesus. You can go away from Jesus disappointed. Did you know that? There was a rich young ruler who thought he could manipulate Jesus. So he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher. Interesting words. Because the word good there speaks of being associated with divinity. And so Jesus says, you know what, if you're going to call me good, we need to have a completely different conversation. If you're attributing divinity to me, then we need to have a really different conversation. But he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as we work our way through, Jesus says, well, you know the commandments, and all of them refer to the horizontal, not the vertical, by the way. All of them refer to the horizontal. And he says, all of these I've kept. I've been a really good boy. I've done all of those things. And Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Your heart is full of the things of this world. Go and sell all that you have and come follow me. Greatest invitation in the universe, come follow me. And he went away from Jesus, saddened, because he was very rich. First one is, a hard heart thinks that we can manipulate God. A hard heart is a dry religious heart that says, my merit and my favour with God relies on what I do and how I do it and none of that. The message of the gospel is that there was huge hurdles and a huge chasm between us and God and Jesus closed the gap. Second one. The last one's a doozy, by the way. I love the last one. But the, se- the second one's a good one as well. Verse 25 of chapter 8, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron. This is after the plague of the flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron. So have a listen to what Pharaoh tries to do here. Uh, Pharaoh said, uh, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. <laughs> now, that's not the deal, you see. That's not the deal. And so how many of us, we've all fallen into this trap. I know that all of these apply to somebody in this room because I'm in the room, right? I know there's been times in my life when I've tried to think, you know what, I can bargain my way with God. And I know there's been times when I've tried to negotiate with God. How many of us here tried to negotiate with God? Negotiations sound a little bit like this. Yeah, God, I'm going to do everything you want me to do. I'm going to do everything you want me to do. I'm going to be a good boy. I'm going to do all those things. But we're going to do it my way. That's what Pharaoh says. And I know you guys are all holy and righteous and and float on air and none of this happens or applies to you guys, but this applies to me. There's been times in my life when I said to God, you know what, I want to do everything you want me to do, but I want to do it your way, my way, your way, my way. And we rotate, don't we? We've spoken about this in, in previous weeks. It sounds like this. Father God, your will be done. And here's how you can complete that. And we slide the piece of paper across the desk with a list of, uh, here's all my prayers, Lord, and here's how you can answer them. Thank you very much. God doesn't negotiate. God doesn't share property with your heart either. We'll get to the idols later. 
the last one's a doozy. You see, Thomas was kind of a little bit like that. Thomas said, you know what? Thomas stood at a line. This is why I love Thomas. I'm so glad John put this in his gospel. Because Thomas stood at a line and he knew, you know what? All these guys are telling me that Jesus has been risen from the dead. If that's true, that has huge implications for me. So he says, you know what? I'm going to do this my way. And I'm not going to do anything unless Jesus comes here and puts down a big... How many people have said... How many times have you heard this? You know what, if Jesus came down and appeared to me, then maybe I'll believe in him. He did it 2,000 years ago. And Jesus meets Thomas right where he's at. And I love how the negotiations end. Thomas ends with my Lord and my God. And he says, we're going to do things your way, God. And he takes the, he takes the gospel to India. And he converts some of the dignitaries in India. And they come to him, they shake their finger at him, and they say, you've got to stop this. And he says, I can never stop speaking about Jesus. Notice that? He met someone. Captured his heart. He said, I can't stop talking about Jesus. And for those who know what this means, they publicly flayed him. For his belief. The last one. Verse 27. Pick it up there. Verse 27 says, we must. What must you do today? Interesting question. We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go. Here we go. I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Again, who's negotiating here? And the last one is, we always try to compromise, don't we? we? We listen to the words of Pharaoh in his hard heart. He really doesn't have any interest in God's interest here. He's only got his own interests at heart. He only, it's only serving his own purposes. I just, I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want these plagues. I don't, I don't want this uncomfortable stuff in my life. And, and I don't want you Israelites to go anywhere because that means we've got to do some of our own work. He says, you know what? How about you go into the wilderness, but you're not allowed to go too far? And how many of us have said those exact same words to God? How many of us have said, God, you know what? Here's my full surrender, but you can't go any further than this. Lord, you can come into my life, but you can't go into that room where I've got those pet sins. that that Nobody else knows about those things, but I keep them over there. But you can have free reign, but you can't go any further than this. How many times do we say that to God? How many times do we say, God, you can come in and, and fellowship with me and eat at my table, but you can't go to that room at the end where I've locked away all of my bitterness and unforgiveness. You can't open the door to that room where all of that hurt is anymore. You can't go any further. And we've missed it. Because God never wanted to occupy a room in your house. God wanted to be the house. That we divide our life up into. Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. If you'll get up off your high knees and come over and open the door and let me in. There was a woman... I love the the account of the woman at the well for a number of reasons. First one is, in a society and in a culture that suppressed and pushed women down, Jesus elevated them. Some brownie points for me this morning. (laughs) However, the fact that the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans, but Jesus sat down and had a conversation with the woman at the well. But I love how the conversation goes. And aren't we just like the woman at the well, though? You see... 
The woman of the world, she comes out and she's drawing physical water, but she's thirsty on the inside. And Jesus starts the conversation there, but they move on to living water. And she says, where do I get this living water? Is anybody thirsty here today? How's your soil moisture index? We're back to that question again. How's the soil moisture index of your heart as we come around to speaking about living water? And she says, well, where can I get this water? And immediately Jesus goes for the heart. I love this. Go get your husband. (laughs) Oh, okay, we need to move on from here, Jesus. Uh, I don't have a husband. He says, I know. He says, you've told me the truth. In fact, you've had five. I love... Here's a woman, obviously, she's coming in the middle of the day, right? Everybody else drew water in the morning or in the evening. She comes in the middle of the day. She's a loner. Nobody else wants to speak to her. She's got a little bit of a reputation. Jesus takes the time. And so Jesus presses her. Well, you haven't had one, you've had five. And immediately she says, you're going no further, Jesus. And the walls come up and we're turning off the taps and we start talking about worship. Don't we divert with God? Well, let's talk about worship. This is getting a little bit heated now. So let's, let's talk about worship. Worship, you say that we should worship in, in the temple, but us Samaritans say we should worship on a mountain. Jesus says, no, no, let's come back to the heart. Neither on that mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. It's a sermon for another day. That woman leaves with living water. She says, I know when Messiah comes. Jesus says, the one you speak of, I am he. Amazing thing happens. She's the first evangelist, by the way. She runs into a town full of people that didn't like her, never spoke to her, ostracised her, and she says, you've got to come and meet a man. Why? Because the person makes all the difference. And here we have a, a, how many of us are like that woman at the well? How many of us say, God, you can come so far, but you can't come any further? How many of us think that full surrender looks like you can have half of my heart? How, How many of us God gave everything he had. All he had was Jesus. And as we sit here this morning, I I make everybody the offer. If you will open your heart to Christ, oh, how the living water will flow in. If you say, Lord, you come and have your way, be careful now. We've moved past compromise and negotiation, right? If you say, Lord, come in and have your way in my heart. Uh, When I was planting trees, we were going through an enormous drought. And we were measuring soil moisture index everywhere and then it started to rain. (laughs) But the problem was when it started to rain, we were unprepared. And the blocks weren't prepared and the soil wasn't ready and all that water was lost. And what I pray today, because 
sometimes it feels like we're in a drought, right? Sometimes it feels like, man, my heart's dry. And the Bible speaks of a former and a latter rain, and the former rain was a reference to a rain that would come and it would prepare the soil and open the soil, and then the latter rain could come. And I believe that we are on, I can smell, I can smell it in the clouds. But I have this warning. Water washes off hard surfaces. And so my prayer is that we would give up our hard-hearted ways, stop negotiating, drop the religion, We've got some good news for you this morning. There's nothing you can do today that will make God love you anymore. Can't do anything else. And you don't have to walk away like the rich young ruler, but you can come to the fountains of living water. That well never runs dry. That promise goes further to rivers of living water in our bellies. I wonder if we can sit in silence for just a couple of minutes. Just allow the greatest heart surgeon in the universe, the wonderful Holy Spirit. Maybe the Holy Spirit's knocking on those doors of unforgiveness. Maybe Jesus has been knocking at the door and you've left him out on the porch for far too long and it's time to open the door. Maybe you've tried to negotiate. Father, as we sit here this morning, if we are honest, we are thirsty. The more we drink of you, the more we want. The more we taste, the more we desire. Father, let it rain on our hearts, I pray. Let it rain inside of each and every heart in this room. Lord, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do. I pray that you would be granted access into those rooms that have been locked for so long. Father, have your way in this church. With nothing else added to that prayer, have your way in this church. Have your way in my heart. Soften our hearts, I pray. 
In the wonderful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.